You're listening to However Improbable, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. I'm Sarah Kolb. And I'm Marissa Mercurio. This week, we're taking a look at four relatively recent adaptations takes on Conan Doyle's most famous woman. This is our case file on the many faces of Irene Adler. Yeah! In this case file, we're talking about iterations of Irene Adler in three television series and a film. We're interested in seeing how they vary from the original story, what they have in common or don't, and what these versions of an incredibly fascinating character have to say about gender, sexuality, morality, and more. You can listen to our narration and discussion episode about A Scandal in Bohemia by going back a few episodes. We talk a lot more in depth about the plot and impact of the story in that discussion, so make sure you listen to that one too. This episode will chronologically cover, first, the Granada Holmes episode of Scandal in Bohemia, Guy Ritchie's film, just the first one, Sherlock Holmes, the BBC Sherlock episode, A Scandal in Belgravia, and finally, the Irene Adler plotline in Elementary Season 1, particularly the two-part finale, The Woman and Heroine. Needless to say, there will be spoilers, so if you're trying to avoid plot twists like the big one in Elementary, come back when you've watched Season 1. I also want to say that while we're making every effort to be analytical about these episodes and our conversation, these are our opinions on these adaptations. You certainly don't have to agree with us to enjoy the podcast. Full disclosure, neither of us really love what BBC Sherlock does with this character, but we also know a lot of people love the show a lot. If that's how you feel, maybe this isn't the episode for you. So let's start with Granada Holmes, kind of the gold star standard as far as adaptations go. This story does not disappoint. It's essentially beat by beat the plot of Conan Doyle's story, with the notable exception that Watson isn't married, nor does he ever get married in the series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they leave that out of this story, but they leave that out of the whole thing. So, you know, that's just... And honestly, it makes more sense if we're going with our chronology, like we right. talked about in our last episode. Yeah. The other big weird thing about this episode is for some reason, they pronounce Irene... Irena. Irena Adler. Irena Adler. Good evening, Irena Adler. Adler. <laughs> um, it's not quite that bad, but it's a, it's a little weird. And I've read somewhere, I, you'll have to find a source for this because I could have made it up, but I read somewhere it was because they wanted her name to sound more European. Why? She's from New Jersey. As we've discussed, she is from New Jersey. So who knows? Hey, Irene Adler. Hey, Irene! I'm walking here. <laughs> sorry. I would I rather that. I'm sorry. I don't think we need to talk a ton about the Granada episode because, like we said, it is essentially the same exact plot as the short story. Yeah. And also because we talked about it to some degree in our Granada Holmes episode. Mm-hmm. But do you have any, like, particular thoughts about this adaptation? I mean, it's a really beautiful episode. I think what it proves is that it can be done. You can just take a scandal in Bohemia and put it on screen and not change the dynamic that Conan Doyle wrote, and it's good. Which we're going to see lots of other people don't stick with that. And it really maintains all of the crucial themes and character mm-hmm. dynamics. It's got Godfrey Norton in it. It has phenomenal disguises. Just one of my favorite things ever about that story, but then also the Granada Holmes as a series is how good all the different characters are in disguise. Like, Jeremy Brett is fantastic, and we get him in two different disguises in this story. And I think the woman who plays Irene 
Her name is Gail Hunnicutt. Gail Hunnicutt? Yeah, Gail Hunnicutt plays Irene That's Adler. That's kick-ass. Yeah. She does a great job yeah, she's in lovely. this episode. I very think she elegant. is very, yes, very elegant, very stately, and very self-possessed. And she looks great in mm-hmm. a men's suit. Yeah, she wears some really beautiful coats. The costumes are good in this one, too. And clearly loves Godfrey Norton. And the king's got a hilarious mustache, but that seems about right. Mm-hmm. The gold standard. It's page to screen. Next, we want to talk about Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes movie. Full disclosure, we love this movie. We do love this movie. It's what we're, I think what we're going to do for our one-year anniversary of this podcast is do an episode on this movie. Just in case you're not familiar with Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes, it was made in 2009. Robert Downey Jr. plays Holmes. Jude Law plays Watson. Roughly the plot is that Holmes and Watson are hired by a secret society to fool a mystic's plot to take control of England. Irene Adler hinders, then helps, then hinders again, then gets thwarted by Holmes at the last minute. And in this adaptation, she's played by Rachel McAdams. Yes, it's very over the top. It's very... It doesn't take itself too seriously, which is, I think, why we both like this movie so much, despite its many foibles. Obviously, this is not a perfect film. It's not a perfect adaptation of Sherlock Holmes by any means, but it's so fun. And it's just ridiculous. And the costuming is beautiful. For all of these adaptations, the two questions that I really wanted to look at was what we think it's doing as an adaptation, what traits of Irene's they pull from the story, and what do they get somewhere else? So let's start with... Just a very broad overview of what it's doing as an adaptation in the first place. In this film, she is presented as a antagonist towards mm-hmm. Holmes, but they have a romantic dalliance that apparently was in the in the past, but still maintains a sort of affection for one another and is always figured as a temptation between the two of them, particularly on Holmes' side. She really wields the power in that relationship, at least through her feminine wiles. Um, <laughs> but she enters his life in the middle of this case, and it becomes clear that she is wrapped up in it to some mm-hmm. degree, and that she has her own motivations going forward. The movie as a whole, and their version of Irene, um, it really just wants to have a good time. They're not concerned mm-hmm. with book accuracy. And I'm not really concerned that it's not particularly book accurate. That's not what this movie's trying to do. Like, like you kind of hinted at, there are some things in this character that pulls in some tropes that I don't love the most. Even though there are things that are totally not in the book that I think are really fun in what they do with her. Yeah, I really do like that they make her into a more fully fleshed out adventurous. Mm-hmm. Although yeah, she's, she's like also a professional a criminal. Thief. Yeah. Which, as we talked about in our last episode, is not accurate. And although they are somewhat antagonistic towards one another in the short story scandal in Bohemia, it is full-blown in this adaptation in which Irene is literally a criminal. But you're right in that it is, it's really just trying to have fun. Um, but again, it does fall into the very common pitfall of making their relationship explicitly romantic slash sexual. So in terms of things that they get right off the page, I don't think it's very many. Again, I don't think that's what this book is, uh, this film is worried about, but they they really capitalize on this idea of her being an adventurous, this sort of world traveler who is living her own independent life and getting into things. She makes a crack about like the marriage that didn't stick and um, 
<laughs> so like it might be like a little bit of a hint of sort of what the plot of Scandal actually is. Um, and then the, a little detail I love is that Watson describes her as one of the three people who ever beat Holmes. You know, that's something he says in the stories later on. And they really play that up to the max here with hinting at what these characters' history is. And of course, <laughs> that suit. The menswear. That suit. The suit. Rachel the McAdams suit. The, the suit. woman in the suit. It, it's it. It's the it moment. It says. Absolutely it. And just for clarification, we are talking about that lovely brown tweed suit with the fuchsia lining. Uh-huh. That she she wears in the climax of the movie, essentially. Yeah, and it's a three-piece suit, too, I yes. believe. Briefly, she has a little hat. Hugely significant. <sighs> in the history of cinema. Yes. And in like their personal cinematic lives. moment. I mean, this, <laughs> that suit, they were like, what did some college-age bisexuals need to see on screen in 2009? And it was Rachel mm-hmm. McAdams in this outfit. Brain breaking. We're here for the Jude Law and the Rachel McAdams of it all. Oh, Jude Law. Yeah, Jude we Law. clearly we have lots of thoughts on this movie. <laughs> Bisexual fodder, essentially. Bi- oh my god, yeah, they're throwing this the movie. biggest bone. <laughs> anyway. anyway. <laughs> so the second question, what what do they kind of invent? What comes from somewhere else? Like you said, this concept of her as a professional thief. Obviously, it's a bit of a stretch from what she is on screen. I don't hate it. I think it's fun, but... It is fun. They also align her with Moriarty, Mm -hmm. which I don't love, just because I think it, again, is one of those common failings of adaptations that seeks to make Irene a villain, or at least criminal and antagonistic, in a way that does not at all reflect the intent of... A scandal in Bohemia. Right. I think that's an important point because she is antagonistic to Holmes's ends in Scandal. But Holmes is wrong, as we have discussed, which means that she's like really in the right. He's the one who's like doing petty crime in Scandal mm-hmm. in Bohemia. Adaptations that take that dynamic and then say, no, she's like a villain kind of make me crazy. I agree. And it's something that you see in so many adaptations. Like, even though we praised The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, it also does that. Mm -hmm. Again, even though it's not literally Irene Adler, it kind of basically is. So it's playing up that relationship. And I think they could very well have written this character into this plot line and had her be just sort of like mildly antagonistic, but not attach her to to Moriarty, who's the big... Mm villain big bad you know, that bumps me out a little and i think that the the romantic mm-hmm. presentation of this it does nothing for me personally <sighs> as we will talk about definitely when we cover this movie it is so homoerotic that it's not even it's like <laughs> i mean it is right like it is and i'm not even like i'm not saying that as like a person who like wants that to be the case no it's just like a but, stone cold fact it's a stone cold fact, and they play it up even more so in the sequel. Uh-huh. And so it's a very intentional presentation, and it's playing off, you know, the familiar tropes of the Holmes Watson marriage dynamic and their their domesticity together, and the way that Holmes is incredibly jealous of Mary Morstan, you know, essentially becoming destabilized because Watson is moving out of Baker Street. The way that they then slot Irene Adler into that dynamic doesn't do much for me when there's already this sort of essentially a love triangle going yeah. on between yeah. Watson, Holmes, and Mary Morstan. 
Yeah, that's a good way to summarize it. Yeah, and kind of going off of that, something that they invent for the story is that Holmes and Irene and, and also Watson kind of attached to this have history. And this is not the first time meeting them. And there's there has stuff in their pasts mm-hmm. that have happened that we don't know that kind of gets slyly alluded to. Um, yes, and I love this actually yeah i think it's really great i want like a that trio to go on adventures together because possibly my favorite scene or sequence in that film is when they are in the um abattoir (laughs) and they get all hooked up on the the pig slicing machine whatever you call that and they gotta pull her down and she's got this cool blouse and trousers on but they're all working very much in tandem, like they aren't like they know each other and they're familiar with each other in the way that they work and they are all striving towards the same end, which is so that Irene does not get sliced down the middle. Sliced in half. But yeah. I also really like how it dips essentially into a horror film mm-hmm. and that the way they all three are pitted against the police in that moment. Yeah. It's very fun. It works mm-hmm. really well. So, you know, that's fabricated, but I don't care. It's a good time. The final thing, of course, is that Holmes wins their confrontation. And Irene specifically does not come out on top because of her sentimental feelings for him. (laughs) Not great. Watson hitting home that idea of Irene beating Holmes in the past feels like a cop-out so that they can then make... Holmes defeat Irene mm. in the end of this film. That's a good point. And it's really unsatisfying, especially in the way that it is because of the sort of sentimentality between the two characters, or at least on Irene's part. She, like, refuses to go all the way along with Moriarty. Irene and Moriarty are on the train together, and Moriarty sort of chastises Irene for allowing her silly little feminine emotions to get the better of her. Yeah, and he is, like, using her affection for Holmes to get her be involved in his plot. Again, totally missing the point of who she is as a character, where literally she's like, who is this guy? Why is he Leave in me my alone. house? Go away. And I do think, like we said, in terms of that Holmes, Watson, Irene Adler history could be done so well and yeah. so fun, where they do work together and that Irene and Holmes become this dynamic in which they respect one another, in which they are very similar. Because I do think they are somewhat similar, actually, mm-hmm. in this film. Yo, totally. I see that um, aspect But of I, I think just, like, throwing the whole wrench in of romance disrupts all the goodness of yeah. that. This is from, I'll link this really great article from the Baker Street Babes in the show notes, but this is a quote that I thought kind of summed up my feelings on this from one of their articles about Irene Adler and adaptations of her. And what they had to say was all nods to her strength of character and her feminism, listing these different versions mm-hmm. of her character. But surely we ought to question why nowadays Irene must be a villain in order to exist as a narrative. Good question, Baker Street Babes. It's like these adaptations don't know what to do with a woman who doesn't want anything to do with Sherlock Holmes, and that she is concurrently, independently thinking, and as smart, if not smarter, than him. And living her own life that does not revolve around what he's up to. On that topic, (laughs) let's talk about a scandal in Belgravia. 
Yes. So the BBC Sherlock episode, A Scandal in Bagravia, aired in 2012. It is the first episode of their second season. It is written by Stephen Moffat. So this is a 90-minute episode, and there are many plot twists and many turns and movements throughout the entire episode, so it's a little bit difficult to condense into a very brief summary, but I'm going to try. So... As Holmes investigates a series of cases, Watson's documentation of their work on his blog increases Holmes's clients, but he is largely dissatisfied with the mysteries presented. That is, until he is called by Buckingham Palace to investigate Irene, who is a dominatrix with state secrets pulled from her clients. She initially wins out over Holmes, but the final hour instead culminates in Irene's defeat, in which Holmes deduces a paramount code and then saves her life. Yes. Lots of little things that I don't totally understand what was going on. It's a very convoluted plot. Like, there are CIA agents from the United States in yeah, it. There's a plane filled with dead people. Moriarty's sort of mentioned yeah. in it. Um, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch is, is Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Martin Freeman is Watson. Laura Pulver plays Irene Adler. Andrew Scott briefly makes a cameo as Jim Moriarty. So this is a hugely popular TV series. And I think was, as it aired in 2012, because of the success of the first season, people were really looking forward to this episode. And I can't yeah. quite remember, because I saw the first season not as it aired, but like close after uh-huh. I watched it, it kind of like right when they all were done together. Yeah, and so I do remember this episode coming out. By the time that season two came out, I, w- I had seen season one and I was sort of up to date with it, I believe. It's sort of hard to remember because it's been almost a decade. I know, um, yeah, wild. And I think a lot of the, the feelings that I had about this episode, I s- at that time when it came out, I still have. Because we, we just rewatched this. Yeah, yeah, we both rewatched both it. And, I you know, for both of us, I think it had been years. Yeah, basically since it came out. And I was trying to have a very open mind and think, like, maybe I'm, you know, it's been a long time. There was a lot of internet discourse about Sherlock back in the day. Maybe that was coloring the way that I was remembering this. And I don't think it was. Yeah, I would like to preempt this conversation about BBC Sherlock and actually look back on the Guy Ritchie film, too, with this article um, that I found that Mm. it was published in Neo-Victorian Studies, the Neo-Victorian Studies Journal, called, quote, The Naked Truth, The Post-Feminist Afterlives of Irene Adler by, I'm sorry if I don't pronounce your name correctly, Antonia Primorak. And this article specifically attends to adaptations of Irene in BBC Sherlock and both Guy Ritchie films, nice. the author argues that the overt sexualization through which Irene is figured as a criminal love interest for Holmes sublimates her canonical agency and reifies gender norms. So it's essentially saying that, like, this tendency of adaptations to, quote-unquote, liberate women, like Victorian characters, by sexualizing them, instead does the opposite Mm. and just Mm -hmm. reifies traditional gender norms. The article explores the, quote, blatant and much overlooked loss of Victorian female characters agency that takes place in the process of updating Victorian texts and contemporary screen adaptations through the now almost routine sexing up of the proverbial prudish Victorians. The, the author is arguing that there is this tension between the urge to liberate the Victorians by sexualizing them and this 
tendency towards actually traditional or neoconservative gender roles that that ends up doing. And that ends up eroding the Victorian character's agency. Undoing the work that yes, was exactly. sort of inherent in the story in the first place. And that was both about the Guy Ritchie film yeah. and BBC Sherlock. Yeah, I um, see that in yeah. both of these adaptations very much. BBC Sherlock's goal as an adaptation, I think they wanted to present a modern kind of prestige TV is maybe the term of phrase I would use version of these stories. They're full of allusions and references that are well edited. They're very fast paced. Loosely, they're trying to take these stories set in the Victorian era and put them in the modern era and Mm -hmm. change or adapt things as they go. One thing I really do like about this episode, and it's probably in other episodes as well, but there is a point of emphasis at the beginning of this one, is Watson as a blogger. Yeah. And that's the way that it presents Watson's narration, which I I quite like. And their whole, like, tiff between Holmes not understanding why that's so popular when he's written his monograph on tobacco and (laughs) Watson's blog is really popular. So I like that. And the idea of that is what makes Holmes like really popular yeah, amongst like his clients his that he's yeah, yeah it, and I think I mean in terms of things that they get off from the original story that very loosely maybe like you said the thir- first 30 minutes of the plot line Holmes mm-hmm. kind of dresses up as a vicar to get into her house but right. things go right from there this sort of loose idea there's a royal client who hires him to retrieve an item that's perilous so they start I guess with the premise of a scandal in Bohemia but then obviously it completely goes off the rails after that right so let me ask you about the way that irene is presented in bbc sherlock she's a dominatrix she's ostensibly a lesbian although that is entirely backtracked yeah. by the end of the episode what are your feelings on presenting irene as a dominatrix my problems with the presentation of this character are not that someone is choosing to write her as a sex worker. Like, that's not my issue necessarily, because I think that's a storyline that you, someone hypothetically out there could write with with care and nuance and make it very interesting. I think it's more that the people writing this episode probably don't know any sex workers and are certainly not like sort of thinking about them as people and their real political position. It's just sort of, I think they were thinking in terms of like, what she looks like and how she acts and what her job is, they're thinking what is going to be sort of shocking and titillating mm-hmm. for this character. And they wanted sexual liberation and they wanted some surprising and unexpected. And I guess on the surface, you're like, oh, you're doing this with Irene Adler. But like, that's not what my problem is. My problem is that as a character, she's rendered very 2D and it doesn't live up to how rich she is in the stories. It's definitely a bit of a letdown for me. Yeah, I agree. I have no problem with a adaptation of Irene as a sex worker, and I actually think that the idea of her collecting blackmail and images from her clients in that way is kind of compelling. It doesn't totally fit with what Irene does in the short story, because we know that she's specifically not trying to really blackmail people. But she does say that in this episode that her, her phone is her protection, which is what Irene says about the photograph in the short story. But that's only the first 30 minutes of this episode. 
right? Because yeah. by the end of the, of the first 30 minutes, she does defeat Holmes and gets away. But then the last hour is entirely built around this idea of both Holmes and Irene sort of having this affection for one another, but much more so on Irene's side, or at least her sentiment is what ends up allowing Holmes to defeat her. Yes. Very explicitly at the right, end of the with episode. that ridiculous plotline with her phone password. I see some similarities in this storyline and in Irene Adler in the Richie film that we just discussed. Mm-hmm. Like, that, you know, she's an, an antagonist kind of pushed to the max. She's, I think, a femme fatale character kind of pushed working to the max. Working with Moriarty. And then she's working with Moriarty. And, again, like, none of which is the case or anywhere close. Um to this story and also one of the things that really stuck on me I think watching this for the first time in a while is I hate this implication that she's like interested or paying attention to Holmes before meeting him Mm -hmm. for some reason that really bugged me because it's just so I'm like you're totally missing what this is supposed to be where the whole point is Holmes is like totally disrupting her life she really wants nothing to do with him You know, it's so hard to divorce my feelings about this episode and Irene's presentation from what is, frankly, homophobia scattered Mm. throughout the entire episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's especially because, you know, it's not just, it's not separate from Irene's storyline. Irene asserts that she's gay. Watson... Like in the same conversation, a overly concerned that people know that he is not gay from the beginning of the episode, and then again he sort of shouts to an empty warehouse that he's not gay. Not great. It's an example of um, maybe like in when we talked about private life, we talked a little bit about sort of showing queerness without saying explicitly. Mm-hmm. Like literally, all she does is she says that she's gay, but there's nothing. Does she speak? To, she speaks to her assistant. Does she speak to any other women? This episode no. does not pass the Bechdel test. No, I don't think so. Yeah, and I I think the issue with that, too, is her assertion with her being gay, which, frankly, I would love a gay Irene Adler, but it's not necessary. But the problem with it is that, of course, by the end of the episode, she sort of falls for Holmes. He provides very elaborate evidence to demonstrate that she actually has emotions for him. Mm -hmm. She talked... He talks about how her pupils were dilated, how her pulse was increased, forth, and so it is supposed to confirm that she has affection for him, that she is attracted to to him. him. And so that does frustrate me quite a bit because I'm like, why would you say that she's gay if she's not? Yeah, like what's and of course, like bisexual people will say that they're gay, but I don't think that this is what that is trying to do. Watching this episode, I feel like these. TV creators want to do a version of Doyle's Most Famous Woman that's going to be surprising and shocking and different, but they don't seem to know how to present her without putting her through the lens of, like, the strong female character. Yes. No, I think this episode suffers very heavily under the Joss Whedon syndrome. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Which just means that, you know... Only the only young women that are being written are the ones that the writer finds attractive, and of yeah. course, all of her strength must come through her sexuality. Yeah, and like Holmes breaks into her safe by guessing her measurements. Ooh, it's so gross. That's not empowering. It's creepy. 
Yeah, it's a tricky terrain to discuss because on one hand, obviously, for some women, showing their body is empowering. And I think that's great. And sexuality absolutely should be empowering for people. However, the way that it is depicted, the method by which it is depicted, Mm -hmm. is the issue in this episode. Right. And of course, the difference is, you know, individual women make individual choices. But she's not a woman. She's a character. She's a character. Like, she's not, she is not a a person making decisions she is a character being written by a male writer yeah and of course like the guy Ritchie film it goes out of its way to demonstrate holmes beating irene which is exactly the opposite point of a scandal in bohemia she loses because of her sentimental feelings for him and then in like it's like if in case this was not enough. The last 30 seconds, she is about to be decapitated by scary, ambiguous Muslim Ooh. terrorists. Oh, it's bad. And he literally saves her life. It's just like, what? Right. Yeah. I mean, he says when he is deducing that she actually is attracted to him, Holmes says that, quote, sentiment is a chemical defect found in the losing side, which... I think is a very highly gendered statement to be making. Like, he is very clearly conflating Irene's womanhood Uh with sentiment, with losing, with quote-unquote defects in this episode. To go off what you were saying about the trope of the scary Muslim terrorist, which is, let's be clear, very racist. Extremely racist. The author... You have to try really hard to be more racist than Arthur Conan Doyle, but they did it. You do a pretty good job. Yeah. At least that's translated from page to screen. (laughs) In that article, Primorak writes that the unexpected appearance in Sherlock of this orientalized figure of the veiled woman as visual shorthand for oppressed woman of the former colonial space, which also implicitly carries a justification for recent neocolonial military interventions, also serves to reinforce the post-feminist notion of freedom defined by the image of an overtly sexual Western woman. So it's essentially grappling with what we in the West often mistakenly assume is liberation through the sexualization and the nudity of female bodies. And when that's contrasted to a covered-up female body that is non-Western. Right, so it's juxtaposing what is saying is feminist which is, versus what is not feminist in a very reactionary way. I think the reason that Irene Adler is figured as a dominatrix and that they chose to go that route is so that they can make all these little clever witticisms about quote-unquote beating someone. Yeah, she's and so the that woman by who the beat end, him. Of the episode, Irene is the one who is on her knees and about to be brutalized. Oh. And that Holmes is the one who gets to save her from that. So it goes from this very, quote-unquote, strong, liberated female character who is in full possession of her sexuality to the end in which she is fully covered and is conflated with the disempowered Muslim woman in the show's perspective, so that Holmes, the white man, can enter the quote-unquote oriental space and save the white woman. Oh, it's just gross. It's gross all the way down. Yeah, I did not enjoy rewatching this episode. I did not either. And I don't really need to watch it again.
No, we'll wait another 10 years before I feel the need to <laughs> watch this. That's for the best. Okay, so finally, we want to talk about not specifically just one episode, but sort of a, a plot arc of the first season of Elementary. The Irene Adler plotline, this season came out in 2013, the Irene Adler plotline lurks in the background of their first season and comes to a head in their two-part season finale, The Woman and Heroine. Uh, Johnny Lee Miller plays Holmes, Lucy Liu plays Joan Watson, and Natalie Dormer plays Irene Adler. Through the course of the first season, we get this backstory that kind of unspools as we go. We learn Irene was Holmes's lover for a while while he was living in London, an American artist. She died. She was killed by the mysterious M, who we later learn is the criminal Moriarty's chief assassin, Sebastian Moran, played very wonderfully by mm-hmm. Vinnie Jones. Is that his name? Um, I don't know. And He's her great, death, his resulting failure to figure out who her killer was sends Holmes into a tailspin and eventually that's why he overdoses and that kicks off the plot of this story but wait she's not dead but But wait wait. she's not even really Irene Adler yes so this is a really complicated episode and serious to talk about within the context of Irene Adler because when we are talking about Irene Adler she's not really even Irene Adler Irene Adler as a person does not exist in elementary so major spoilers here and we will be talking about the first season of elementary in its own separate case file in which we can get more into depth about the intricacies of this season which is difficult to do in such a short time span because there are like 22 episodes yeah it's I a think. lot and this builds you know like we slowly kind of learn this stuff as it goes and then it concludes quite nicely. So let's talk about what Elementary is doing as an adaptation. My feeling is that Elementary is very purposefully grappling with both the canon and recent adaptations. It's trying to mine the longevity of Sherlock Holmes and proves that, for example, Watson being a man in the canon isn't why the stories endure. It's effectively asking how far we can push the canon and still demonstrably perform an obvious Sherlock Holmes adaptation. So Mm -hmm. it wants to know Mm -hmm. why the stories endure and what makes them endure. So, for example, like, making Watson a woman in elementary demonstrates that the reason we love Sherlock Holmes and the reason why the stories continue to be adaptable and watchable is not inherently because of Watson being a man, for example. Or, on the other hand, it being set in 19th century London, mm-hmm. or London at all. Yeah, and I also think that the next thing that it does on top of that is it questions and contests recent adaptations, like some of the things that we've been talking about. What's really exciting and interesting and, and very unique in this adaptation with their version of Irene Adler is they intentionally subvert your expectations. We kind of assume going into it, at least I definitely remember watching the first season of this show, knowing that there was something up when she reappears, when you find out mm-hmm. she's not really dead, knowing that was suspicious, knowing, oh, this has to do something with Moriarty mm-hmm. because that's a trend in other adaptations. And right. then they get to pull the rug out from under you and do something even wilder with it. Right. I think it's a really good point that Elementary is very specifically dealing with the recent adaptations because, like you said, I think that is the expectation of the audience that 
Irene Adler is going to be working with Moriarty or she's villainous in some way. We also know at this point when she reappears that Moriarty is lurking in the background and that he's up to some nefarious things, but we don't know what it is or who he is. Casting Natalie Dormer, too, was like, oh, she's going to have a big part. She's going to be really significant. Yeah, you're not casting her as a bit part. And I think we should be clear here that if you have not seen Elementary and don't plan on watching it, that the big reveal is that when Irene returns to Holmes and Watson's life as Irene, it is later revealed, it is soon revealed in the in that double feature finale, that Natalie Dormer is actually Moriarty. That Irene Adler is a mask that Moriarty put on in order to investigate Holmes as a person because Holmes, when he was consulting with Scotland Yard, was disrupting Moriarty's plans. So she, I mean, it it literally invents a character. Talking about Irene as a a character. Invents a character that she thinks will work to get close to this guy to figure out what his deal is. I think kind of early on her motivation is to get him out of the way so he's not disrupting her criminal empire. We get that wonderful plot twist, wonderful change in costume. It's... Well executed and really exciting. It's really good. Jamie Moriarty. Yes, her name is Jamie Moriarty. Um, so do you want to talk about what traits they pull of Irene from the canon? It's a tricky question to answer because, of course, like we said, they're playing with their expectations. If you're familiar with the Holmes canon and you assume someone who's going to be into watching elementary, you at least have passing understanding, you expect certain things from a character named Irene Adler. Mm-hmm. And then they twist them. Really looking at the, the kind of version of the character that we meet f- first. Mm-hmm. This right. is the first adaptation that recognizes that she's an artist. In this one, she's like a visual artist. She's not a, a performer. Right, she's a painter. But that's still a nice thing to throw in there. She's very much positioned as Holmes's intellectual equal, both as Irene and as Moriarty. Yeah, and in fact, as Moriarty, kind of like, you know, like what Natalie said in our most recent episode mm-hmm. when she was talking about that she actually realized that Irene is not Holmes's equal. She's his superior. I also think that there's a lot of really direct language coming from A Scandal in Bohemia throughout the series. And I think increasingly as the show progresses, there are a million Easter eggs so that if you are familiar with the canon, you can see how adeptly they are engaging with the, with those stories. Holmes says to Watson at some point that Irene was the woman and that she eclipsed the whole of her gender in his mind. I like when they do that. Like, they will do that in this show where they'll drop just one little line or a phrase right from a very Victorian style of writing into, like, a CBS procedural. Yeah. And it's always so good. I love it every time. It, it's, really, it's really cohesive, and I think it works really well. Yeah, so what, yeah, what varies? What do they do differently? Well, it's hard to say, again, because they're grappling with audience expectations, and Irene Adler is not literally... Irene Adler. She's someone else entirely. So I think it's hard to talk about this. But like we said, it is engaging with recent adaptations, specifically B.C. Sherlock and the Guy Ritchie films. In terms of that finale, the two-part finale, it is similar to B.B.C. Sherlock and to the Guy Ritchie film in that Moriarty, actually, not Irene Adler, her affection for Holmes is part of her downfall. But I think it's really significant that it diverges from those versions because Holmes himself does not defeat Mm -mm. Irene Adler slash Moriarty. 
And he is also in love with her, and his love for her makes him unable to solve the mystery. He is actually going to sort of flee the country and try to wait till things sort of wash over and so that Watson will be safe. Watson is the one who figures it all out, and she is the one who comes up with the plan to defeat Moriarty. Mm -hmm. So it turns that idea of sentimentality on its head as both something that is something that Moriarty and Holmes are susceptible to, and that we still have a woman who defeats Moriarty in the end. So it does fall into that sort of category of this, like, romanticization between the characters, but it's doing things very differently yeah, I think in its, it's method. It's a very different... It's very different intentionally, and the way it plays out is very differently. And the fact that Watson gets to be the one to... I mean, part of her arc is, like, proving her worth as a detective, mm-hmm. and that's where she belongs and what she wants to do. And that moment of she's the one who gets to do that, I think, is so awesome. Yeah, it's really meaningful. Character. Because the show is really about that partnership, Above all else. I do think the elementary plot line is doing something very different and it pulls it off very well. But, you know, I, I wonder if they had really tried to do Irene Adler as a character, what they would have come up with. No, I think you're right. They could have done something slightly different in elementary. It didn't have to be Irene Adler who Holmes had that relationship with. It could have been a completely different character. Yeah. Like, I get why they um, did it, but I am but... sort of like... But what what could have been, like, their version of Kitty Winter is so good, so oh I, I mourn that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Just to kind of wrap this up, I think the concept that this, like, master criminal would invent an Irene Adler character as the character that's most like to, like, be attractive to Sherlock Holmes is really on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to me. Do you have any, like, final thoughts about these adaptations as a group, anything that you were noticing across these four different versions of Irene Adler. The big thing that you see here, Granada aside, is this this villainization of her character. But in elementary, I would include in this because ultimately, mm-hmm, you know, she's like part of a, a plot. And again, the idea that you can't have this brilliant, self-possessed, very independent woman who, like we have sort of established, is smarter and perhaps superior to Sherlock Holmes, you can't have her exist in an adaptation if she's not attached to him or if her interests are not revolving around him in some way. And I think like that, it's hard because of course he's your main character and so you have to have her play into that somehow. But that's the challenge I think to do the story right is how do you make that work without changing her motivations, without changing what she wants Every time it happens, and it's most of the time that that's where it goes, I just, I despair a little. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next week when we present our next book club episode about My Dearest Homes by Rose Piercy. You can send your thoughts to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at improbablepod. Our website, howeverimprobablepodcast.com, has transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. You can find a link to our bookshop where you can buy Rose Piercy's book if you are interested in reading this pastiche before we talk about it too. If you enjoyed the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Mercurio and Sarah Kolb, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. 
Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours.